Well, I mean, these interviews are very open-ended, yeah. so we could start talking about the business, and they just end up talking about Sex. animal behavior. <laughs> You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode you meet a different scientist and find out about their stories behind the discoveries they make. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by two scientists. I'm joined by ecologists, analysts, and business developers, Dr. Athol Wynn and Simone Stuckey. Guys, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us, James. Now, I want to ask a very open question to start off with. Can data analytics save the planet? Discuss. <laughs> I'll give you the easy answer. It can help. Yes. Yeah. Not on its own, but okay. it is a definitely part of the solution. Yeah. In, and yeah. In what way? And so I guess uh, just hearing you say that this is about discoveries and how they're put into action, I think mm-hmm. our big discovery as a group of scientists, there's three of us. We also work with our co-founder, Michael Smith, Dr. Michael Smith. Um, our big discovery has been that There is data everywhere Mm -hmm. in the world outside of science now. Mm -hmm. It used to be almost exclusively the domain of scientists and researchers to collect data. Uh, What we're finding is that groups all over the world, large government organizations, large companies, not-for-profits collect data and they collect large amounts of it. Mm -hmm. And they're starting to catch on to the idea that they should use it and they know they should use it for decision support. The problem is they don't really know how and when they do know how, maybe they're not quite using it to its full potential. And mm-hmm. that, as a discovery for us, was also a discovery for the business opportunity to extend services and now products to organisations to make better use of their data. Uh, yeah. And particularly, we're interested in areas where that can help save the planet. So are we in a data revolution? Is this what we're talking about? Um, we are in a data transition, I guess. I don't mm. know about revolution. Um, particularly with the clients we work with they collect a lot of data or data sorry we lived in the u.s for two years and i still (laughs) switch between the two (laughs) um and uh yeah they collect a lot of data but they only probably use about 10 percent of it Mm. just because the tools and things that they're used to using aren't really powerful enough to actually be able to get the best use out of that data. Mm. And so I think we are in a transition where humans are, the tools that we have are getting better, that we are able to draw more information out of the data that's on hand. I think when the revolution part comes to the application and the use, you know, a lot of the things that are now getting used from a scientific perspective are not that revolutionary. These methods and these tools mm-hmm. and these ideas have been out there um, for 50 years in many cases. So people get very excited about machine learning these days. It used mm. to be called statistical learning. The basics for that <laughs> um, were developed in the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. and have been developed for the last half a century. Mm. Uh, it's only now that we have the computer power and a whole bunch of data to train those statistical tools on mm. that we're really seeing the revolution part so i think the revolution is that the time is right now with mm. the combination of technology and mm. computer accessibility um and availability of data that yeah the, there's a revolution taking part what we're trying to do is help direct it a little bit because mm. we see business uh, intelligence tools starting to really pick up machine learning starting to really mm. take off 
what we've found is that when we talk to people about all these other tools that are out there and ways for dealing with data and doing what we do, which is systems modeling or complex systems modeling, that they're really surprised about that. They haven't heard about that. And mm-hmm. that sort of knowledge is sort of trapped up with experts at universities mm-hmm. um, and at the CSIRO or NASA and things. Mm-hmm. You know, you speak to people there and they know all about this, but you go outside and others, mm-hmm. they just think it's all a bit magic. So yeah. the revolution yeah. to me is like, how do we get all of that scientific knowledge out to the world and make it easy yeah. to use? Well, you've jumped on this trend and have started a, a business called Miso, mm-hmm. which is, a, an, is right to say it's an analytics company what does Miso do well it's an analytics company um i guess as a base as a starting point mm-hmm. um and so as you said we have moved into the business world um so that's been a steep learning curve for us mm-hmm. over the past 12 months um and learning about how the science world and the business world work and what they value and how they see success and how they see the way that tools and the way that humans can access tools and make decisions and Mm. things like that are quite different actually so Mm. in the business world they see success as being able to take your idea and apply it on a large scale Mm. whereas in science new discovery and things like that is seen as success and that's great too but we're trying to bring those two together where we are using uh, building a product that can take the science to a large scale in terms of the way that people are able to use these techniques. Mm-hmm. So um, we are an analytics company, but we are we're building the expertise in analytics into a platform that can be more widely used by those non-experts okay. out there in the world. So building a platform. This mean that this is a sort of product that you can offer, or are you entirely bespoke analyses for for people? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a product that we can offer and continuing to offer more broadly. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, the transition part for us going from science to business and and bringing those two elements together has been sort of realizing that. Science often goes to business, especially in our area of analytics, mm. um, in the form of consulting. Yeah. Uh, so specialists who come and solve a problem and do it once, and the final product is a report um, mm. and a result. What we're trying to do is identify areas where there is opportunity for the or the need for repeatable analytical methods and models mm. and make those models repeatable and available to the end user mm. rather than needing to go back to an expert each time. So mm-hmm. through the platform now, they can log in, okay. uh, access uh, a system where they can upload all of their data, get uh, visualizations of that data, mm-hmm. and then sort of access to complex modeling tools and techniques to support their decision making. Mm-hmm. And they can get that in one spot. Uh, we're doing that uh, bit by bit in new domains. Obviously, the challenge is with doing complex modeling that it's, it's often quite specific to an area. Mm-hmm. So it's bespoke in the sense that it's specific to a to a field of research or a field of modeling. Mm-hmm. So what what sort of data are we talking here that businesses come to you with? Yeah, so we've had you know two. I guess we've got two big case studies we can talk about yeah. at the moment for mm-hmm. the last twelve months. The first one has been um, in fisheries resource management, so mm-hmm. for sustainable fisheries. Um, we've worked with the Victorian government to. Uh, develop a system that allows them to automate the process of their 
model-based decision-making mm-hmm. uh, on an annual basis. They they currently do that by either having someone in-house or needing to get the experts in each year mm. to, to do a consulting project uh, a few months at a time. Um, so the data that comes in there is uh, records of all the fish that were caught, where they were caught, when, mm. what size they were, who caught them, uh, how. Mm. Uh, all of that information is typical sort of life history and biological mm. data. Yeah. Uh, and um, How many babies there were. Yeah, so that's the life history data about the, the how that species or that stock uh, survives and reproduces and grows. Mm. And then, yeah, we, we bring all that together and we haven't reinvented the methods for doing that. Again, those methods are yeah. out there. Normally, those groups would have to go to experts. We're developing tools that mean biologists, for example, and managers and other decision makers who would normally rely on someone else to do this, mm-hmm. they can now access that system themselves and, mm-hmm. and do a lot of the modeling, or at least get themselves 90% of the way and yep. need an expert for a few days rather than a few months every year <laughs> to review it for them. Um, another area we've been working is in uh, essential services. Again, that was for Victorian government. Um, one of the key Victorian government um, essential services providers came to us with a question about how do they decide how many new staff they need and when they get them, where should they go? So where should they be allocated geographically mm-hmm. and to what parts of their organisation? Yeah. So again, the problem to us is a resource allocation and optimization problem yeah. uh, and we've built a system that takes in 20 plus big data sets. So we're looking at tens of millions of rows of data now for them we bring that together in one pot spot, put it all together, run the analytics, and the mm-hmm. system gives them decision support and scenarios to test and to, to question. So the people that are they're collecting the data, the scientists that are collecting the data, how, this might be a stupid question, how do they feel about handing the data over? I mean, because we're in this data transition, whatever, it seems to be a real change of uh, approach. You know, in our scientific training, we're taught we hired to do our own analyses mm-hmm. and to handle the data ourselves, and you have sort of ownership yeah. over the whole yeah. project. Yeah. Now that data sets are just getting bigger and bigger, it's yeah. not feasible, and we have to almost outsource source yes. data yeah. management and handling it. Yeah. Is, are people cool with this <laughs> just yet? Some well, it's a good question, yeah. really. I mean, when we went, yeah, I guess in those fields where you've had more scientists in those fields, say for fisheries, Mm. it's difficult because, as you say, they feel ownership over their data, even though it is public data. Mm. They still feel an ownership over it. Um, Say in the emergency services field, um, there has been much less resistance because the scientific community in that field isn't... It's either very small or not really existent. Mm. Um, and so they have been much more open to us coming in and helping mm. in, or yeah, coming really with our point. solution. Yeah. Where there's been scientists who have had yeah. some ownership before, they've definitely felt uh, some reluctance to hand everything over. Mm. And one of the things we've had to make sure is that for the business we're developing and the product we're developing, that it's not seen to be given over entirely, yeah. that this is a partnership where mm-hmm. they can use that software to improve their own capacity and mm-hmm. ability to deal with the now yeah. huge data sets mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and the more complex problems. One of the things that's doing is actually freeing up their time to then yeah. focus on the <laughs> yeah. new stuff. You know, like, so on they the can, exciting yeah, stuff. Yeah, they can say, well, that's great, that's automated yeah. now and that analysis that I had to do every year and just redo yeah. can be automated. 
uh, and they can spend some time looking, being scientists again, yeah. <laughs> and really looking at the little bits of new information and what what new models they can develop and what new techniques. Yeah. So we have a few the fisheries. Some of the fisheries uh, people we've worked with, they're actually turning from like skeptics into like our champions, <laughs> our champions yeah. because they've seen how much this actually helps them refocus their capacity and time on the stuff they really love mm-hmm. doing, um, and it and that includes collecting the data. Yeah. So for a biologist, they don't like being in the office having to write these reports. Yeah. They prefer to be out in the field collecting yeah. the data and stuff I mean, we've like already that. seen a similar transition just with uh, molecular data. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. Not too long ago, if you were looking at genes, you were in the lab. It's about everything. You were extracting the DNA. You were isolating what you had. You were running the PCR. Taking months and months. Yeah. And... That was your, your skill set, but now we're sequencing entire genomes, we're sequencing hundreds of genomes at once. Mm-hmm. It's not feasible for the actual investigator to be doing all of that yeah. work, so it's now just yeah. outsourced to other labs. Yeah, exactly right. Outsourced or put into a machine that handles most of the yeah. Yeah, old manual work for you, and so we're, we're trying to take some of that to other areas of modeling and statistical analysis to mm-hmm. show that... There are things that are repeatable and uh, easily automatable, and, mm. and that can free up time for, for new things. I wanted to ask on your website, it also points out that you look at sports performance mm-hmm. data. Mm-hmm. <laughs> can we talk about that? What sort of that's been a bit of a, it's been a bit of a fun aside for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's one that's yet to materialize into. Um, a sort of profitable venture, but it's, <laughs> yes, there is a lot of interest in it. A lot of yeah. interest that's yeah. just navigating the business, yeah. legality mm. world. <laughs> Sports data's yeah. been great. It's one yeah. of those areas that's undergoing that revolution. Yeah. There's yeah. there's so much data now, and so we've been working with a few um, yeah. AFL clubs, for example. Mm. Who, who So if you think they collect a lot of data in biology... Yeah, collect way more sport. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so a lot of these teams now are, and this is happening in soccer and rugby and basketball and all around the world in a bunch of big national competitions. Players wear GPS trackers, for example, mm-hmm. or other data loggers on their body. Mm-hmm. Clubs are just getting, and sometimes that's collecting information at 100 hertz. So they're getting 100 records of information every second from every player <laughs> for every second of game time mm-hmm. and every second of training. Well, and this is just turning into terabytes of data every couple of months for these clubs. Yeah. They hold that and they use some of it in game day because it comes up on their screens and they can see yeah. who's running, how fast, and what they're doing. But they're realising now that they've been doing this for four or five years, they've got all this data that's it's just a wealth of information mm. that can be used for understanding more about their sport, about player performance yeah. and about uh, productivity as a team. What leads to wins is always what they're interested in, of course. But, and this stuff's so mind-blowing that... High level sports is not just about working hard yeah. anymore. No. No. You can have athletes mm. at peak performance and go further. Yes. Simply yes. by chipping away at little things that you wouldn't things. see if you didn't have yeah. all this data and metadata. Exactly. And things. And that's what we've done. So that's, uh, it's on the website because it is there. We are continuing to work with a, with a, a couple of clubs. Yeah. Um, mm. And their interest is in us helping them to really start to understand the potential in that mm. data. So that's where we're at. We're, we're helping them move forward, and we've done some small little bespoke projects mm. for them. Um, our aim is can we can we turn that first project again into a more generalised mm. thing that says, hey, if you're a club that collects this. GPS data on your team, 
here's a system that allows you to really analyze and use that for chipping away at those really small it's probably things. Probably also not just about performance, but about injury management. Yes, and that's and one of things that major. Absolutely, mm. yeah, injury yeah, management and player management outside of the game time is a really big deal for yeah. those clubs. Yeah, and they're even using the data, they want to use the data to look at things like team momentum even in a game. So if certain players, mm. are, their performance is going down, does that mean the whole team comes down? Or mm-hmm. Are there key are they players, key indicator species, yeah, you might think, exactly. if you're an ecologist? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing, and it's some, it's, I guess this began because with a colleague from CSIRO, I've... Yes. Um, had a side hobby of doing sports modeling research for the past five or six years. So I have a few papers now on Mm -hmm. modeling the dynamics of leagues and Mm -hmm. sort of how teams compete against one another and especially how draft systems for leagues can lead to new dynamics Mm -hmm. in the long-term structure of uh, performance among teams. So your best teams this year, how are they going to be performing in five years and can you get the poor performing teams back up to peak performance through the draft incentives. And we've been looking at that for a number of years and published on that and had that in a a textbook, a European textbook on um, sports Mm -hmm. modelling, which has been fun. Uh, And we're trying to see is there business opportunities in that as well. I was talking to someone a while ago that was doing their, they're doing a master's degree, um, looking at uh, rugby teams. And she was monitoring an activity of A-grade Teams of B grade teams or A level and B level, mm-hmm. and getting all this tracking GPS yeah. data. And what she said was really surprising. She was saying that the A level teams are moving faster, more efficiently, and yes. they have greater endurance than the B level teams. But the collisions that they're seeing in the B level teams are way higher than the really? A level, and the impact yeah. that they're getting. And she's saying that they're sort of interpreting that as the A levels being more, I guess, I guess better at yeah. avoiding better, yeah. better at taking, yeah, that's right. taking them and so injury rates. Sort of, in, you would think they hit each other harder, but they maybe do it in a more professional way yeah. that reduces their risk and injury. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. very interesting. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's say for, you know, nationally in Australia, the injuries, you know, sports injuries is one of the leaders, leading cause of hospitalization and of you know, <laughs> um, doctor's bills and time out of work and what have you. Yeah. Because, yeah, you, I think you're just as likely to get injured playing social netball as you are professional netball <laughs> or even more. And maybe yeah. again, it comes down to yeah, the conditioning and the, yes. yeah, the ability of the pros to, to avoid injury or stay in better condition in the first place. That's right. Well. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, this is all data and this is all information that's out in the world now. And that's, that's what we're excited about mm-hmm. is that. There's opportunities to use it and really um, bring that that data-based or scientific-based approach to decision-making mm. uh, to new areas. I think scientists have done it well for a long time and mm. our opportunity is to get it out there to the world. And I think we're seeing that around yeah. the world now with these, yeah, with analytics tools being made available online. So the scientists are often seen as being boffins <laughs> and specialists and all right. things. Yeah. Yeah. But does having... Uh, you know, quantitative or computational skill set just open up everything to you? <laughs> um, you mean, do you yeah. think it's like a great skill set to have more generally as a scientist? Yeah, or as because you're not restricted to you know, fisheries, right. stock management. No, that's right. Oh, I guess I that's the interesting part. Yeah. Like we, we, 
both studied ecology as you yeah. did back in you university. Just discovered we yes, all have similar backgrounds, <laughs> uh, and I did elements of animal behaviour and uh, and ecological systems. And I think you were doing a lot of ecology. Yeah, I did a lot of ecology, agriculture yeah, as well. Anna, yes. um, but for for Michael and I, the, our PhDs were, you know, in mathematical modelling. Mm-hmm. It just so happened that our application was fisheries okay. and marine ecosystems, yeah. um, and we did that in the Department of Zoology, but at University of Melbourne. But we were two of the only people doing desk based jobs and modeling jobs in that department All right. so it was really interesting to be around people who were specializing in a particular species or a particular mm. type of ecology um, and have them come to talk to us about their problems mm. with data and analysis and realizing that yeah the, the part we were focusing on with the numbers game if you will yeah has super wide applicability mm. um, because I think as you said before that 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 need to do analytics comes to every scientist, mm. but I, with our focus on getting better and better at the analytics, sometimes it doesn't really matter what your application is yeah. if you if you can work out how to make the best use of the numbers. And yeah, I'm, I was just trying to think about it as well, like the boffins. <laughs> I'm trying to, like yeah, in university, I'm trying to. I'm picturing like someone sitting in their office and they don't ever speak to the outside world in a university and things like that. Mm. And they might have um, some picture of the world in their mind and how it works. But I think it's really important for universities to connect and have partnerships with the outside world. Mm. Um, and I guess that's what we've been trying to do as well. Um, so my research, I had a, when I was in university, I had a partnership with the outside organization. In your PhD, you also had that partnership and very yeah, applicable nature of your yeah. research as well. So I think we just maybe have come from that mindset where we really enjoy applying our research to uh, a, a wider audience and yeah. problem and something. Yeah, um, we and we really love seeing our clients um, get excited by something they might think isn't that exciting if they just <laughs> saw code sitting on a screen. If yeah. you know what I mean, like they yeah. really like seeing. And being able to, I guess, become little mini scientists themselves. So they like, oh, what if we did it this way? And what if we did it that mm. way? And they just see really like great value in um, some of the things. That's been a good lesson for us this. too, that as a boffin or an expert yeah. in a particular area, even if that is statistics and modeling, yeah. like you still most of the time are working on your own set of problems or something. And, mm. and I think this is probably true for a lot of scientists, you, you start to feel like that's all you'll ever work on and you'll keep yeah. going down that yeah. pathway yeah. and that you, <laughs> you may not, you may not yeah. have skill sets that are more broadly applicable. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the major things I've learned after leaving academia uh, is that that's not true as soon as you get out there and show that the scientific paradigm and the scientific method uh, and that includes analytics and analysis of, of data and statistics and what have you, um, those things are super applicable in other areas yeah. where those skills are really lacking. Yeah. So the scientific approach is a is a really valuable thing and big companies and governments and groups, they're looking for those skills. So mm-hmm. That's my shout-out to people who are listening who might be thinking they're stuck on their one little academic trail like, 
get out there. People want you. I've talked to a lot of academics on this podcast, and that's a very, <laughs> very big question, particularly you know, for someone that's done a PhD like yourself. I think as soon as you do a PhD, you start to feel trapped mm. yeah. in academia. You've made the leap out of it. Was that scary? It was at the start, yeah. yeah. Did, it, what, did it take you, you know, jumping off on a ledge, or did it... Just no, happen. we did it gradually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's metaphorically the, jumping up. Yeah, the ledge. we 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 um, crawled over the ledge and hung on for a little while, and then slowly <laughs> let the grip go. When we could see the bottom might not be so dangerous. <laughs> um, yeah, and we're responsible for taking two other people out of academia mm, as well. Mm, so so yeah. extra people that have joined our company. Mm. Yes, one was offered a postdoc yeah. several years and then turned it down to come and work for us and his mm. advisor was not impressed initially yeah. <laughs> um, because he said, you know, you, you get on a track when you're doing mm-hmm. academia and you've studied a PhD. But, yeah, there are other opportunities out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, I guess they became obvious to us because we had been, several of us, the, the three founders and the fourth person had been mm-hmm. working with us on and off. Um, doing the consulting started to get us to realize that there were there was a need for that type of work mm. and that skill set and so i guess we saw that there were opportunities to to jump out we didn't have to completely jump blindly off that cliff <laughs> yeah. uh, we had had some success over a few years just doing part-time mm. projects and side projects yeah. And it gave us some confidence that there was enough work out there to, to turn this into a vibe. So sort of, the offers were more attractive on this side. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Yeah. yeah. Well, also, one of the things we were scared about was that the work might not be as stimulating. I mean, one of the things you mm-hmm. love about being a scientist is you're working on really hard problems and that there's, mm. and there's really stimulating work. But to be honest, I've found the problems we've been faced with, maybe we've been lucky so far, but have been just as, if not more, stimulating because... Often we have to do them a lot quicker now and get them <laughs> sold and the pressure's on. Yeah. But um, we're then given some resources to do that. And sometimes you can't do that so easily in academia. And resources and funding may be difficult. Yeah. But in this sense, we've we've had clients approach us and say, look, we've got this problem. We want it solved. Here's the funds to do it. Can you have it done by June? Mm. And we just say, okay, great. We're on it. <laughs> and so much of it has still been scientific. Um, mm. The result of our projects rather than a paper though now mm-hmm. is a product um or uh, a report or something that, that i mean that's got to be a, a shift in your mindset as well to stop gauging yourself based on grants and publications it has yeah, yeah. it's been yeah. quite a shift yeah. uh, during the phd as you spend so much time thinking about getting publications yeah. and getting getting involved in that in that area i guess i was both of us simone and i have been out of that because Simone went on to public policy and mm-hmm. government for 10 years after her degree. Um, so you'd moved on from that earlier. Yeah. Uh, I'd started to because I was in a field where it was application was heavy on the application side. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the time you were building models or writing reports for government agencies um, rather than getting so much time to do the academic publishing. Mm-hmm. So I'd sort of already had a taste of that's not the only <laughs> way to measure yourself. Yeah. Um, but moving on from it now, I miss it a little bit in that I wish I had a bit more time to go back and write a paper or something, and I, <laughs> I still can, you know, if I could yeah. find the time. Yeah. And you're still uh, an editor on a journal, so you yeah. Still so I've stayed involved by being editor, an editor of Natural Resource Modeling Journal, mm-hmm. 
and that keeps me in touch with the literature and, yeah. and feeling involved. But yeah, hopefully I can find time to submit a paper at one point in the next yeah. year or so. But I know getting one every couple of years would be quite satisfying to me now rather than having to think that I needed to meet yeah. some, some goals <laughs> or something. It is funny how that sort of research in academia tendrils hang on and things like that. Particularly, I mean, you mentioned people that might feel stuck in research. It's funny that we hear non-research and non-academic careers talked about as alternative yeah, that's very true. When they're, yeah. what, 90% of what people end up in? Yeah. <laughs> I think, actually, I heard that recently. Yeah. yeah, 90% of people that do PhDs don't go into academia. Mm. So it actually means you don't get told that yeah, when you're starting your PhD. I think it's a failure, really, of the system because, mm. you know, there isn't as many postdoctoral positions out there anymore in Australia. Mm. Um, and so I think universities need to start thinking or encouraging or showing the the variety of options that are mm. out there and building networks and connections and stuff for yeah. PhD students because, um, yeah, they provide so much value and they have so much knowledge that they could give elsewhere outside of mm. just the university as well. Yeah. I think universities are coming around to it. Maybe the <laughs> academics themselves. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. <laughs> universities are all about encouraging yeah. and showing that your degree could take you anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, professors that you work yeah. with, they often don't talk to you about that because they've yeah. followed a particular path, I and guess, that they want to encourage you along. Academic paths or can yeah. they give advice on that path. Yeah. yeah. If they wanted to encourage other pathways, they yeah. wouldn't. Exactly. That's true. So what would your advice be to students then that want to have a little fingers in many pies, I guess? (laughs) I can tell you what I did, again, following the professor's (laughs) school of thought, which is you can give advice on the way you did it. And I I started a a consulting company or I started a – I registered a business name and a business uh, early on in my PhD – just so that I could have that there and take that opportunity should it arise. Mm. And I made myself up a business card and I would just talk to people at conferences and say, you know what, I could, I do these things and I could do a bit of work for you. Mm. Um, you know, if, if it's, if it's fits within the PhD schedule, I think we all try to work a day a week, um, or a little more and tutoring and demonstrating mm. things like that. But I sort of broadened that to some consulting yeah. and I did some small consulting projects year on year. Yeah. Uh, and that's what started to give me a taste for, yeah, there's, there's things out there, there's opportunities out there. So I just say to those, to people who are doing their PhD or what have you, like, don't be afraid to talk about your skill set and mm. make yourself for hire. Like, I mean, did that keep you sane as well? It really did. Not having just a PhD. (laughs) It really helped. I think like anybody doing a PhD, insanity was part of the process. (laughs) But, (laughs) yeah, it helped to reduce the insanity and keep me sane to have, um, yeah, to have things outside and start to think, you know, one day this could be a company that employs multiple people and Mm. goes on to do new and exciting things. I think that's where we ended up, but wasn't where I always saw myself or the company going, but mm. I knew that it was an option, and that's ended up being a good option. So yeah. I what, it. Was there a, a day when you sort of realised, all right, I'm, I'm full time business developer, CEO, whatever? Yeah, that it was. It was just uh, start of last year, January 2016. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we'd made the jump, sort of the commitment to try and make it full time a few months before that. Mm-hmm. But um, we had a chance to be involved in a program 
uh, here in Sydney um, last January called Data Start, mm-hmm. which was run by the federal government out of the um, Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. So it was actually one of Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's pet projects from his communications yeah. role before he became Prime Minister, yeah. and it got taken over to the Prime Minister's office, and that was a government program that said, hey, if you're a small company who thinks you've got big ideas for making better use of government data, mm-hmm. then come and pitch your business idea yeah. uh, at a boot camp. And um, Simone found that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I don't know where you found it. How did you come across it? Um... On Eventbrite. <laughs> <laughs> so you quite literally just saw the event. Uh, yeah, I was just looking up uh, events in the uh, city at that time and that one popped up and I thought, oh, what's this? This sounds interesting. I think we should go along. So, And we've yeah. been talking about starting this company uh, and really committing to it and mm. Simone brought this to the attention of Michael and I and said, hey, check this out. If we're going to start a company, why don't we try and convince someone to support it and back mm. it? And we threw ourselves into that competition and uh, we were selected from a nationwide search to be one of, uh, I think, eight companies, 20 eight, people. Yeah, yeah, 20 people. Got yeah. invited to a boot camp for yeah. a week in Sydney. Yeah. Um, and that was a torturous week that was uh, very exciting, but it was really a boot camp. We worked very long days yeah. <laughs> and had our long business time. ideas and yeah. assumptions torn apart day by day by um, a company yeah. called Pollinizer yeah. here in Sydney and uh, together with people from the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. And that resulted in us having to pitch the business idea at the end of the week to, mm-hmm. a, to a Shark Tank-style scenario <laughs> uh, in front of a live audience yes. um, with four judges um, right. people from government and industry uh, and some investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to pitch it. We were given a 15-minute slot to, to talk it up and say, here's what we're going to do and here's why it might work. Yeah. Uh, here's our potential client base. Here's the market. Uh, then we would have to field questions from all the, yeah. the, the judges. And, yeah. yeah, we did not win that. Uh, we finished runner-up. Uh, and there wasn't meant to be a second prize, but we were offered on the night um, to, to sort of to do similar to the winner and join an incubation program, which mm-hmm. meant we were given um, a year's business coaching and support, or nine months, nine months. Um, here in Sydney, which provided us with office space to get started and business coaching and mm-hmm. uh, startup science, it's called. It's not science, but it's very close to it. <laughs> uh, startup science, they call it, which is a program where you focus on um, doing small experiments. Yeah, testing about, your assumptions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is scientific yeah. in that sense. Yeah. So we spent a lot of... A lot of months testing our assumptions and going out and talking to potential clients and working through how yeah. can this business work is yeah. what got us there. It's yeah. so great hearing how people describe their own career paths because you, know, you hear about them and they seem so linear and at least <laughs> intentional. You know, you study yeah. and then you start your own business yeah. and that takes you into the business world or you move into public policy and that sets you yeah. up in this you know, consulting yeah. direction. Yeah. but. Sometimes it just comes out down to stumbling across an event break. Exactly. That's what I was. That was my tip for the students: always be on the lookout. Mm. Like things might just go to events that you think are interesting, and you know, a lot of our connections over the past year have just come from. We've spoken to somebody who knew somebody who thought, you know, like or and. Or we went out to dinner with someone, they're like, oh, that sounds really interesting and come mm. and talk to us the next day about it and those types of things. Yeah. So, yeah, there's doors can get open in ways you haven't thought about. 
Yeah. It's definitely been not You can't up. plan. And it's, yeah. it's almost at every step it's been because of opportunities yeah. of meeting people or hearing about yeah. an event or going to an event. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's a big tip. Like just yeah. go to events, go to things. Yeah. Um, one of my favourite books is The Black Swan, um, okay. which a lot of scientists might know about. Um, and one of the tips in that book is go to parties. And what he means <laughs> is, yeah, go and talk to people, go to yeah. events. And that's, yeah, that's what happened to us. The, yeah. That one about Data Start um, was an information session about what it would be all about. And there was mm-hmm. free beer and pizza and it said, come <laughs> along and listen to this yeah. spiel. And, yeah, I just decided to go after work and listen to the spiel. And yeah. here we are 18 months later yes. running a company. And mm-hmm. yeah. The other tip is be audacious. Don't wait for people to come to you. Mm-hmm. Go to them and also go to them with an idea or a proposal about how you think it might be good to work together or you mm-hmm. know, how you think you might benefit from working with them or um, would they be a mentor to you and like those types of things as well. Because so, mm-hmm. I think that's, I know myself, I think I would have benefited earlier in my career if I'd done that type of thing instead of sort of waiting till now I think you should try and do that younger because mm. yeah. I think mentors and people who have been there before are like really valuable as mm. well and can give you guidance and help you navigate some of those challenges too. I think James too you said like when you're um, when you're studying and you've got an advisor or you're doing a PhD and you have a professor or something you often just go back to that yeah. same person and listen yeah. to that yeah. same bit of advice yeah. and yeah someone's right like uh, I guess I got lucky in it again it was non-linear because I also worked with CSIRO I just met a lot of people doing slightly different things mm. and got to go to networking events and, and um, stakeholder meetings and just chat to people about the kind of work I did for my PhD and that just led to growing that network and talking to more and more people about what could come next yeah. that led to a postdoc overseas for a couple of years meeting someone through CSIRO um, so yeah just put yourself out there Give it a shot. And don't expect a linear career, I think. <laughs> it happens for very few people, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a good note to end on. <laughs> the world is non-linear. Yeah, we can, well, let's finish on that. Right. That's the type of modelling we do. Yes. You know, there are simple linear models, and everybody assumes that you can extrapolate a current trend into the future, and that's enough of a decision-making point. But uh, the world doesn't work like that. It's all random, and there's things... You mean a slogan? Role is not linear. Yeah, that's that's a good one right now. We, our, our our more boring branding one is modeling made easy, but I think um, um, the world is non linear. It's complex. Talk to Miso about helping you solve your complex problems. Bam. All right. So if you want to do that, there's a website you can go to. There is miso.com.au. M E Z O.com.au. Check us out. You're on Twitter. Yeah. We are at Miso Research. Uh, find us, hit us up on Twitter or I think even Facebook. Maybe we've dropped off that a little bit. We do, yeah. It is there if it someone wants there. to find it. Okay. But uh, Twitter's, <laughs> Twitter's where it's at now, so yeah. definitely hit us up on Twitter. <laughs> thanks right. very much, James. No worries, thanks for Thank coming you. on. And thanks everyone for listening. If you want to find more podcast episodes, we're on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, you can subscribe, you can follow us on Twitter with the handle at Institute Science, and we have a brand new Facebook page, so keep an eye out for that. I've been James O'Hanlon, thanks very much for joining me, and we'll see you soon.